God, apart from you, we cannot know. Apart from you, we cannot see. Gracious God and Father, would you so reveal Jesus the Son by way of your Spirit? Would you reveal what Christ said to his disciples in these moments? Would you reveal the the reportage, the gospel reportage of these events on the pages as we read them by your Spirit, that we might see Christ, that we might see our need for you, that we might see what it is that you've done, that we might have life and joy and peace. And so work in that way in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A good way to begin, I think, is a window into some sermon prep, okay? Every now and again, it's useful, I think, to give a window into sermon prep. So the job of a pastor, and occasionally I get this question, like, okay, so you speak 40 minutes on Sunday, what do you do for the rest of the week, right? Um, The job of the pastor in a primary sense is not actually to have some message pre-canned and pre-planned on some topic or issue that he already has a plan to address in a very particular kind of way, like he knows what he wants to say about it. And then to find a way to connect the text that he's in that Sunday to that pre-canned, pre-planned idea, all right, to what he was already planning on saying, to, to even scour the scriptures for a text that makes the point that he wanted to make to begin with. This is, listen, this is why preaching through the scriptures at GLC is our normative pattern, because it's a safeguard for the preacher and for the people. Regardless of who the preacher is, it's a safeguard for the preacher and for the people. It's a safeguard for the, the one who's administering God's word, teaching it, preaching it, and those who are receiving it. It's a safeguard for the preacher because it diminishes the tendency to try to make the pulpit something about me, my opinions, to try to drive the pulpit by way of my own own engineering. It's also a safeguard for the people because why are we coming under Uh, preaching each week? Is it to have our ears itched by things that we want to hear? Or are we willing to to hear God's word proclaimed? So it's a safeguard to both. We don't start with some agenda that we want to communicate, right? We start with the scriptures and we allow them to set the agenda for us. Now, there are times, just so you know that I'm not throwing any shade here, there are times when an in-depth study of the scriptures as a whole in the pastoral life and as elders of the church lead us to connect to a topic that directly addresses something in our cultural moment. The scriptures are prophetic. Also, you know, week to week as we preach through the scriptures, certainly the Spirit of God is at work like showing us how something directly in the scriptures as we study connects with an important cultural topic, something that we need to address. So the scriptures are prophetic in that way, and so a topical series can be super helpful. But these things also, you know, they need to have been borne out in the same way. A topical series needs to have been borne out in the same way. They need to come about primarily by approaching the scriptures, letting them be the clear arbiter of what's communicated and contended for rather than some idea that the pastor wants to make, some clever point he wants to make, something that he thinks is going to be heard by culture in a particular way, punching left, punching right, whatever the situation is, right? So all this to say, John 15 is notoriously used in clever ways to give backing to topics that it actually doesn't set out to primarily address. And if you listen to the first message that we gave in John together, 
I said that this is actually, unfortunately, the way that we tend to approach John as a whole. It's been notoriously used to communicate in a primary sense things that John had no intent to suggest, okay? And that's a shame because when we approach the text in order to gain its meaning, that is to say, when we attempt to gain the meaning that the original author intended for his original audience, and that is the task. The task isn't to come before the Scriptures in our study of the Scriptures and say in some kind of a Christian relativizing way, well, this is what it means to me today, right? Before we start talking about what it means to us, we have to see what it means, what the author intended, what he intended to say to, to his original audience. This is how we read any kind of correspondence that, that uh, we receive from other people. It's the same with the Scriptures. And when we do that, what we find is when we do that with John 15, what we find is the reason the mission statement of our church is in fact the mission statement of our church. So the very mission statement of our church, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city's good, this flows out of the same process. This is because this is how the scriptures speak about disciple-making. It's really our definition of disciple-making. We find more reinforcement of what Jesus has been talking about around the table with his disciples than now he perhaps talks about as they move together toward the Garden of Gethsemane. The point here is that the hour is growing closer to the cross and Jesus is setting out to prepare them for what is to come. He tells them that true discipleship is found in rooting all of life in him. And I've said for the last few weeks, you know, you could really have a subtitle to this section of Jesus' last moments with his disciples being something like God-centered dependency or, or, or gospel-centered discipleship. Because Jesus wants his disciples to know this is how you make progress in my kingdom and this is not how you go about doing that. Okay, so once again, the reason we've come to the conviction, convictions we've come to at GLC related to discipleship, what it looks like to grow in Christ is quite simply because this is how Jesus describes disciple-making it's how all the scriptures speak about discipleship. So I want to use a section out of one of the commentaries we use weekly. So on Mondays, I do my own work on the text. On Tuesday, uh, I yeah, read myself full. I come to the text and now like, what might I be missing after I've put together an initial outline of the text? And to do that, I'll use, when we go through John, three specific commentaries. Carson, so D.A. Carson, Pillar New Testament Commentary, F.F. F. Bruce, and then Grant Osborne, and then I'll use other tools like Craig Keener has a great, pretty exhaustive commentary on Matthew. If you're interested in going in further depth, he's really great. Leslie Newbegin is super pastoral. You know, I've been using Lloyd-Jones as well, right? So there's a lot of different people that um, I benefit from. Why do we go to commentaries? Well, in part because this helps people see, generally speaking, that this isn't just... Jeremy and Pete and Justin and Paul, uh, Matthew. It's not just the elders of our church who got together and had this wild-eyed understanding of disciple-making. This is really how the scriptures speak of it, and this kind of helps give reinforcement. So this morning what I want to do is I want to work a little bit through a section from Carson. He's talking about how the first half of this set of verses relates to the second half. So when we look at John 15 as a whole... How do verses 1 through 8 relate to verses 9 through 17? And that's um, crucial to our understanding of the text, all right? 
He's talking about the progress the text makes, the argument that Jesus is making. And so he says this. He says, apart from the vine imagery in the first part of the chapter, these verses might be taken in too mechanical a way. So if we just take the verse as a whole and we kind of ignore the meaning or some of the biblical theology around this vine imagery, what it's saying to us, then we really can misapply and misunderstand what the text is saying by taking it in this overly mechanical way, as if the relationship between Jesus and his disciples can be exhaustively described in terms of obedience, perseverance, and love. And so the text is clear here. Okay, fruitfulness is really the goal of discipleship. We want to become more like Jesus. As Christians, we want to grow in him. We want to make progress as Christians in this sense. Every day. But the vine imagery at the front end of this text is crucial to us understanding how this works itself out. We, we have to take time to understand what this means. So taken by itself as a whole, and this is unfortunately how we often experience this text interacted with, we can be too mechanical in our, our approach. We can wrongly root our relationship with Jesus and our ability to hold to various discipleship standards of obedience. It's like hearing Jesus say in last week's text, do you remember? If you love me, you will keep my word and my Father will love you and conclude from this that, well, God must love me on the basis of my obedience, primarily. That's simply untrue. And again, it's taken by itself, out of context. We can miss the reality that we discussed last week, which is that desire drives our duty, right? So the same is true here. So Carson continues. So how should we interact with the text then? He says, what would then be missing? So if we went about it that way, if we, if we looked at the whole in, 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 at expense of the imagery at the front end, what would then be missing is the panoply, panoply, which is the complete collection of associations connected with the vine. Dependence, vital union, pruning, and the whole Old Testament associations that present Jesus as a replacement for Israel. The point of the text, okay, what Carson is saying here, and we'll get into unpacking some of this, but really this is the central theme. The point of the text isn't primarily that being fruitfully obedient to Jesus makes you a faithful disciple. It's true that being a faithful disciple means being fruitfully obedient, right? But it's not primarily that being fruitfully obedient is what makes you a faithful disciple, but rather being faithfully dependent on Jesus leads to fruitful obedience and discipleship. Okay, the, the point of the text isn't primarily being fruitfully obedient to Jesus makes you a faithful disciple, but rather being faithfully dependent on Jesus leads to fruitful obedience and discipleship. If you hear this and it sounds confusing, that's okay. We're going to unpack it a little bit this morning, and I hope you have some clarity at the back end. If you hear this and you're like, I'm not sure my ears can really tell the difference. That's okay, because I think a lot of us are coming from contexts where these things get a little bit confused. And this really isn't the normative way of the human heart in processing how it is that we make growth in anything else. You know, we're products of 21st century Western business models of growth and development. So we're always coming at things like, what, do I, what are the steps that I need to take in order to make growth, right? So when we hear something like this, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Might not make immediate sense to our ears, right? But it's true. As it turns out, we can't talk about obedience and perseverance 
and interacting with one another in love and with the world in love without first discussing dependence and vital union in Christ. The reality that Jesus is the one in whom we're rooted, that it's his work that offers us life. And so we're going to see this taking shape this morning in two kinds of abiding in the text. Jesus gives two commands related to this word abide. To abide, if you're like, what does that mean, you know? The only reference I have for it is that the dude abides, you know? So what is, this isn't a word that we use in our current cultural moment. It just means to remain. To remain in Jesus or to, to remain rooted, firmly rooted in Christ, rooted in his grace. But there's two kinds of abidings, two imperatives, two commands that he's going to give us. Starting in verses 1 through 8, would you look to the text with me? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, he says, in me, rooted in me, abiding in me, and we're going to get to the clear imperative of that in a moment. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. The idea here is we are to be rooted in Christ. And so the first kind of abiding that we see in the text is actually abiding in Jesus, rooting ourselves in Christ, rooting ourselves in the gospel. And this is really faithfulness in the vine. Faithfulness in the vine. What does this mean? Well, let's begin noticing the metaphor that Jesus is using here. When we come to the text in John, you know, he's using a lot of different kinds of imagery, genre, literary devices. We can sometimes confuse them, and that, that makes reading it more confusing. We might come to this text and say, well, this is like a parable. It's not really a parable. It's actually more of an extended metaphor. So this is a metaphor. It's a picture. It doesn't have a progressive storyline behind it, but it's a metaphor with the purpose of helping his disciples actually understand this is how spiritual growth works, and this is how it doesn't work. And the way in which you're normatively inclined to think about it, yeah, that's actually not how it works. This is how it works. And so he's using this metaphor to help us understand that. And the first thing that becomes clear to us is that the reason we're called to abide in Jesus primarily is where we have failed, Jesus has been faithful. Why is the first command given, abide in me? Why is our first understanding of our approach to Christ to be to root ourselves firmly in who He is and what He's done? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we hear imagery related to vineyards, vines bearing fruit. But in the Old Testament, the vineyard or the vine of God's people was commonly expressed as the nation of Israel. And in fact, by the time we get to places like Isaiah chapter 5, we come to see that this vineyard actually has not seen any growth, okay? So it's going to take a little time. Turn with me to Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5. I'd really, it, we need to get some holistic understanding of this image of the vine. Isaiah chapter 5. Then we're going to do a little section of Psalm 80 so that we can see what, what Jesus is talking about with a little more clarity, some of the context the disciples would have had. Isaiah chapter 5, keep your thumb in John 15. Isaiah writes this. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. 
My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And so here Isaiah singing this song during what was perhaps harvest season in Palestine. And he's singing it to those who would have been dealing right now with a lot of the things that he's talking about. And in this song, he's telling the story of his beloved planting a vineyard in love, caring for that vineyard in love, taking care of it in love, like giving it the choicest of everything, really, the wall around it, the watchtower in its midst. These are things that weren't, wouldn't have been common for every vineyard across this area of the ancient Near East during the time. So it's like the choicest of everything. But there's a problem at the end of verse 2. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So the vineyard that was planted by the beloved is not yielding good fruit, but bad fruit that's bitter, unable to be harvested for good wine. So after all this love and care and intention, watching over the vineyard, desiring its good, you know, the vineyard's stubborn and disobedient and would not yield good fruit regardless of what it was given, despite the fact that it's like the best soil and it had all the right conditions. So Isaiah continues, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So this is much like Nathan's confrontation of David's. Do you remember David uh, lays with Bathsheba, kills Uriah, and Nathan confronts him with this story of something else that happened and invites David, what should I do with this rich man that, that um, commits this injustice against this poor man? Isaiah is doing something similar here. He's inviting the people to give, to offer some judgment related to what should happen with this vineyard. They'd likely share in the frustration of this kind of circumstance, and you can imagine them you know, jeering and yelling out. So Isaiah says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. We get an idea of who the beloved is here, right? Control over the clouds. But you can almost envision this celebratory reaction from the crowd as Isaiah talks about like this stubborn and disobedient vineyard is going to be destroyed. and Like just leave it. Let the thistles and briars grow up around it. But then in another Nathan to David kind of moment, Isaiah essentially says, you are that man, starting in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. There's a little bit of sarcasm. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the caretaker of the vineyard is the Lord of hosts. He's the vine dresser. And the vineyard in this case is actually the house of Israel. And Isaiah essentially says, he's got this legendary moment where he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I was talking about you. So the entire point here is that Israel is the vineyard and that Israel has utterly failed despite the best circumstances, despite having a God that cares for Israel. And yet there's good news. The good news when we read the rest of Isaiah is that despite the fact that Israel as the vine, Israel as the vineyard, 
has failed, there's a true and better vine that is to come, a root that's, that's shooting up. The psalmist adopts this kind of language in chapter 80. He says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations, drove out the nations and planted it. Who's he talking about? A vine out of Egypt that was planted. Must be Israel, right? Well, not so fast. Verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. For the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. The psalmist points forward to a true and better vine that is to come. Isaiah would continue to talk about that shoot out of the ground. Zechariah, which we preached through last year, echoes that shoot language. There's a true and better vine on its way, a vine springing forth. Why did that vine need to come? Because of the failure of God's people to bear fruit on their own merit. Right? Where we have failed, he has been faithful. So when we get to John 15 and we hear Jesus in verse 1 begin by again identifying God as the vine dresser, just as, he, just as we see in Isaiah 5 and in Psalm 80 and throughout the, the scriptures, we see that we're in store for a conversation about the fruitfulness of God's people. Like, how do God's people become fruitful? But the difference comes with these words from Jesus. I am the true vine. Remember, this word true in John not only means real, but it has the sense of true and better, right? So we saw this right away in in chapter 1, the true light, which comes into the world, and we talked about how, yeah, it means the real light over against false lights, but it also means the true and better light. You know, and as we go through John, we see that kind of imagery. We see it here too. God's people in many ways were spoken of as the vine of God, the vineyard that was called to bear fruit, But Jesus comes as the true and better vine in whom, by being rooted firmly in him, his people actually can bear fruit when previously they could not. And this is so important because it's the entire point. See, this is the point of verse 2. To make it clear that if, if it's true, right, if the branches receive their life from the vine, then conversely, the vine is what produces the fruit through the branches. And what that must mean is, listen, There are no Christians unless there's at least some measure of fruit. You cannot claim the name of Christ and also bear no fruit. That's a theme that John continues to develop in his epistles, as many of us are reading right now in men's and women's ministry. Look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Now, we should talk about this because there's a lot of confusion here. And it's going to, if we spend some time here, it's going to help us understand the rest of the chapter, the rest of the gospel account. But let me give you a quick definition of what Christians often call sanctification. All right, it's a theological term that you might hear used a lot, and you might wonder, well, what is that, exactly does that mean? I'm going to give one version of the definition of this word. It can be used a couple of different ways. When I'm using it this morning, I'm talking about it as our continued growth as Christians in Jesus. That is our sanctification, right? So our salvation happens 
By grace, through faith in Christ alone, we're made new, we're made right. God's wrath falls upon Christ instead of upon, instead of upon us. And now we have this saving life that begins now and goes on forever. So he saves us in Jesus. But then sanctification is talking about our continued growth as Christians in Jesus. We, we continue to become like him. We grow in him. And there are a couple of different views on sanctification that are actually pretty dominant in Christian discussion, okay? Some people hold to what's known as the Wesleyan view of sanctification. And essentially, the Wesleyan view is that it's up to you to do the growing. The burden of the growing is on you to the point that actually you can continue to climb and climb and climb all the way up into perfectionism. Like there are those from within Wesleyan churches where it wouldn't have been uncommon for someone to stand up in the back of the church and say, I'm just so thankful that I haven't sinned for 20 years. That was commonplace in the midst of that movement, right? And yet John is later so concerned about this idea of Christians going around claiming sinlessness that he's going to directly address it as a lie. So the person who stands up and says, I just want to thank the Lord that I haven't sinned in 20 years, it's like, well, streak's over, you know. It's something that's not possible this side of eternity. So this concept of you working hard to pull yourself up even unto perfection, it's just not reality and it's not the way that Jesus talks about sanctification. It's not the way he talks about our growth in him. But there's another view in which sanctification just doesn't matter at all. Right? And you can kind of see where both impulses come from. One comes from a recognition of the problem of a lack of holiness in the church. Like I totally get where Wesleyans are coming from in this regard. This is a problem. Christians not taking holiness seriously. But the response to this by many is to just keep more law on top of Christians as the answer. And this is what I fear is the mistake of Wesleyan sanctification. Just keep more law upon law and that ends up just making it worse because it just actually, ironically, compiles our sin But then there are others on the other side who see that problem of Christians continuing to grow by way of their own strength, following the burden of the law, rightly understanding that Jesus came to set us free from that, rightly understanding that we could never do it, right? And yet, they err on the other side and say, therefore, spiritual growth doesn't matter. And neither one of those positions is remotely close to how Jesus and the rest of the scriptures speak about this process of sanctification. Like the way Jesus describes it is to say, on the one hand, if you're rooted in him by grace and mercy through the gospel of grace, you will become more like him. You'll see growth. But it's important to understand that growth is going to look different from person to person, from circumstance to circumstance. It's not something by which we can go around pridefully listing off our accomplishments in the face of others' failures, comparing ourselves to everybody else to see if I'm making progress. Because that would ironically be a failure of pride. No, the way that Jesus describes it here is that he's the one who gives the means of growth so that Christians can grow. Kind of like then a positive trending stock ticker in which, of course, there's going to be moments of failure and sin. But over time and until eternity, when we're made perfect and complete, we, we continue to, to grow in his likeness. Progress is going to look different from person to person. We continue to grow in his likeness. How? By recognizing a couple of different realities. So this is a good point to, to go back over this material 
At Gospel Life Church, we use Bob Thune, Will Walker, Gospel-Centered Life as really a primary tool for discipleship here. And this is why, you know, here's the, the line of time. Christian conversion happens at this moment. Like, how does one become a Christian? Like, what does it mean, mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, regeneration in the Spirit of God, being given a new heart, happens at this moment in which we become aware of two realities. My flesh and sinfulness and God's holiness. And like my inability to reach a holy God, right? Because I'm sinful and yet God is holy and he has perfect standards. And so what does that mean? I'm completely reliant on Jesus, his saving work at the cross, and this is where I throw myself on Christ's mercies. But where we go wrong is thinking, well, that's kind of the end. And why I like this a little bit more than the sort of the classic bridge illustration, which is, it's fine for sharing about, you know, Jesus' bridges, uh, something that I could never do with my sin with having life with him through the cross, right? But the problem is we think once we've crossed over that bridge at the cross, then it's like, all right, now what do I do on this side? Well, it's up to me to work really hard. And what I like about this is it demonstrates these two things, they don't stop here. Like, my continued life as a Christian is in recognizing a growing awareness. Like the more I grow as a Christian, I'm recognizing my capacity for sin. That doesn't mean I sin more. In fact, the more I recognize my capacity for sin, I actually sin less because I'm growing in him. But I'm, I'm continuing to grow in these two realities. All the time as a Christian, I'm recognizing my, I have a growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness, my capacity for sin, but I have this growing awareness of God's holiness. And so what does this mean? the bigger the cross gets, right? The more and more dependent I get on Christ, on his cross, the more joyful obedience this fuels from within the Christian life, right? So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus continues by saying, though we have failed to bear fruit, he has come that in him we might have the kind of life that only he was able to achieve. So listen to the rest of his words in this section now that we've, it's 30 minutes and I've only gotten through two verses. So um, listen to the rest of this. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Already you're clean because of the things that you did in discipleship, like the checklist that you went through and all the attainments that you... No, already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken. It happens in him, through him. He makes him clean. In other words, the vines that are rooted in him start in a place of fruit bearing because of his work and not ours. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. There's the imperative. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. Know your place in this, right? I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Spiritual growth happens, not by us rooting our spiritual lives and disciplines and attainments and efforts in our own strength. Jesus says it's impossible couldn't be more clear, but rather rooting our entire spiritual life, all of life, in him, in the gospel, in the good news, which brings forth life, transformative life, gospel life, life that the gospel brings forth. Gospel life is what happens in this process. If anyone, verse 6, does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So 
If what Jesus is saying is true, it means there are a couple of different ways that we can reject him. We can reject him through a moralism that attempts to root all of life in my own efforts, that thinks, well, I'm better than others, that I can do better, that I can do more. Well, that's also rejecting Christ. You can be someone who's very religious but still rejects Jesus. Or sort of this licentiousness in which, licentiousness in which we think, I just want to live however I want to live. And so we reject Jesus. We don't actually look anything remotely like him. We look exactly like the rest of the world. And Jesus says, there's judgment for those who are not rooted in Jesus, who do not repent and believe the gospel. And we'll get into why that's the case even as we go forward in the text this morning. So he says, if you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you, as echoes of what we talked about last week, his desires becoming our desires, you know, not saying you can manipulate me through your prayers, but rather I've come to change your hearts, come to change your desires so that you'll want what I want. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Yeah, look, I don't know what the arguments look like for those other two views of sanctification. One that says your spiritual, spiritual growth happens by rooting yourself in your own efforts or the other one that says spiritual growth doesn't matter. It's just not the way that Jesus talks and you have to so change and twist his words here to make either of those a reality that it becomes rather dangerous for you because Jesus says, this is how you prove you're my disciples. Like if you want to demonstrate that you're a true disciple, you can't just live like the rest of the world. Okay? So fruitfulness happens in the life of the Christian. Fruitfulness happens. But the main point of this section isn't actually a focus on the, the fruit itself, the attainment of fruit, right? It's not actually what we see first. It starts instead with this first and primary kind of abiding, faithfulness in the vine, rooting ourselves in his mercy, gospel, throwing ourselves on his mercy, rooting ourselves in his mercy, realizing we can't do it, realizing the extent of our sinfulness, realizing our failure, you know, the reason behind this, where we failed, Jesus is faithful, but you know, we're never going to get to that point if we think we haven't failed. So we do have to see we can't do it, and the only means that we can now be made right and grow in his likeness is who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the gospel. God is the gospel, okay? And we'll talk more about that as we go. So that's the first kind, abiding in Jesus, faithfulness in the vine, but that leads us now to a second kind of abiding, and we see what the first kind of abiding actually generates in the life of the Christian because secondly, we see abiding in Jesus' love. And this is actually where we get to fruitfulness through the vine. Fruitfulness through the vine. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Do you see again, like we said last week, do you see the order of things? This is important. Like, how you order things is important. The first command, the first imperative in the text from Jesus to his disciples isn't to launch directly into all the things that they must do, all the spiritual disciplines that they must collect and attain. The first command is to remain in him, to throw themselves on his mercy because we couldn't do it. Then the second resulting command is how to now abide in his love. Jesus' faithfulness in doing for us what we can never do for ourselves leads to our fruitfulness of being able to grow in his likeness by applying the good news to every aspect of life. And so this entire section develops that fruitfulness in the life of the believer. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments. So we see keeping his commandments is important. 
This is something that if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. There will be an ongoing result of the gospel in the life of the Christian, namely, obedience to the commands of Jesus. And there's no getting around this. But the idea here is not to first like, preach those commands to shame everyone related to whether or not they're keeping them well enough, and that's going to be the fuel for our discipleship? It can't be. It will not work. But to rather first preach gospel graces, like, I think it's appropriate to preach law in, in order to, for us to see that. Like, this is, what, this is what the Reformers did. This is what great revivals throughout church history would do. George Whitfield, you know, it was said, would preach law and law and law and then just a little bit of a hint of grace, and then law, and law, and law, until people were weeping, and then he'd bring the grace of Christ. You actually, you could never do it. You could never, you could never live up to this reality, right? And so, there's, there's going to be this ongoing, first preaching of gospel graces to my heart in light of my failure to ever live up to such commands, which brings about joy-filled obedience Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you, why? Why is he speaking these things to us? Why is Jesus saying these things to his disciples? That your joy may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Like rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his good, for his glory and our good, our joy, not our drudgery. Not like Jesus doesn't become like the new nanny of the law that's like, pestering us to do what, what we actually don't want to do. He says these things for our joy in him, for our life in him. And so we saw the reason for this abiding in Jesus, faithfulness in the vine, the reason is where we failed, Jesus has been faithful. So we don't have a choice. You know, like he's the, the only way through whom we can have spiritual life. But now we see the result of it. The result of this is watering and planting the gospel for, for his glory and for our joy. Like gospel graces may bring about more joy in our life. This is what discipleship is at the core. Where does it come from? Look, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. So there is an imperative toward us loving one another. Verse 13, greater love, where does it come from? It has, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. I will lay down my life for you. If you do it, I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've revealed this to you, Jesus says. Call you friends for all that I've heard from my Father. I've made known to you. Jesus reveals the gospel of grace to us. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Look, look, we, so we need to love one another. How do we get there? You know, like these things I say to you that your joy may be full, these things I command you that you love. Even though Jesus in this section focuses mainly on our obedience in light of his work, so in the second section, he is talking about fruitfulness, which is the goal of discipleship. Even though he's talking about our obedience in light of his work, he still wants to make sure we don't read it and go back to thinking it's our work again. You know? It's so easy. I once had this car that I drove that um, every time it would hit a pothole, the power steering would go up. You know, and so then you're just muscling this thing down the road, you know? 
And eventually I'd realize it, but usually I'd realize it because a friend would drive it and they'd be like, this is not good. Like, you're going to get into an accident. And so this is an old car that I had in college. So then take it in, get it fixed, you know, take it right back on the road, hit the pothole, and it, like in my mind, there's no difference. Right? This is what happens in the human heart. Right away, Jesus just talked about, like, he, he appears to know full well. Our impulse, even in light of his gospel clarity for the last eight verses, will be to immediately take his words and make them about what we need to do to struggle on down the road again, to earn his love, rather than what he's done for us that transforms us. So he brings us back to gospel center again and again and again. That's what he's doing here with his disciples. He's bringing them back over and over again. He says, love one another as I have loved you. He speaks of laying his life down, choosing us in him you know, his work on our behalf. So what does this mean? And also, what doesn't it mean? We talked about this in our men's study through 1 John 4 this past Wednesday night. I gave a little bit of a preview of the sermon, um, kind of went on and on a bit. I'll try to avoid that temptation if I'm discussion leader next time. I think the temptation here in our moralistic hearts, okay, is to think Jesus must mean, listen, I set this example for you. I did this thing as an example for you, and now I need you to do it too. Like so, greater love has no one, has, ha, no one has than this, someone who gives the, their life for their friends. I gave my life. So like I did this whole thing, I went to the cross to set some example for you to follow. Right, kind of like the coach who's teaching us some aspect of us who's gonna be an example, like, Give me the bat. I'm going to show you. You're not just using your arms. You know, like, I'm going to show you a proper stance. I want to show you how to shift your weight, right? So you, you're doing this, then you hand the bat. Okay, now it's your turn. You do it. This is not what Jesus means here when he's talking about, I went to the cross. You know, he's not speaking of himself as some example primarily to emulate. Yes, yes, Jesus does become our example to emulate. Yes, like, when we do read through the gospel accounts, we should be seeing things that we, our hearts should be becoming more like Christ. Yes, for sure. But it's not what he's primarily talking about. He wasn't the example setter or the pace setter because we could never keep up pace with him. It would be like a Formula One driver pulling up next to me on the highway and saying, look, I'll set the, cape, the pace, you keep up, while I try to rev up my 2006 Toyota Camry. Except not really, because the difference is far greater than that. It would be more like if I was mounted on a donkey and headed in the other direction. Right? The point is, we can never do it Jesus, he's not primarily a pace setter. He's a grace giver. And what I mean is, through what Jesus has done for us at the cross, his work that ultimately satisfies, that ultimately demonstrates that we have life in him, what John would later refer to in his epistle as propitiation, like God so loving his wrath bearers, that he poured his wrath on Jesus so that by faith in what he accomplished, we might have joy and life and peace. Through all that, we can now say, you know, I'm loved enough by Jesus to offer the same thing to others around me, which we talk about a lot at Gospel Life, right? It's like, I no longer need to be loved by people around me in order to fully satisfy my heart. It's no longer some conditional thing because I have all the satisfaction and approval and love that I need from Christ. And so now I'm actually able to enjoy people even in the midst of their failures to love me perfectly. I can enjoy the person across from me and I can truly love them because my heart is fully satisfied in Jesus. 
So our first call as Christians is to abide in Jesus, faithfulness in the vine. That's indeed how we become Christians. But it's also, it's our lifetime call. It's our second call, our third, our fourth, because the only way that we can abide in his love and have fruitfulness through the vine is to to remain rooted in his grace and mercy and see how it applies to everything. You know? So to revisit the central theme again, the point of the text isn't primarily that being fruitfully obedient to Jesus makes you a faithful disciple, as though you earn that status of discipleship, but rather being faithfully dependent on Jesus leads to fruitful obedience and discipleship. It leads to our love for one another. It's why at Gospel Life Church we approach discipleship the way we do. It's why our continued clarion call here is to believe and apply the gospel of grace to every discipleship, success, and failure in the Christian life. That he's the one who does this work, but he surely does do it. We're dependent on him in every way together, and so we pray now for his continued work, right? What does God-centered dependency look like in the life of the church? Well, throwing ourselves on the mercies of Christ, repeating the gospel to one another, echoing it back and forth to one another. We demonstrate that dependence when we come to the table, as we'll do in a minute. Another way is to pray together, as we're going to do right now. And I also want to encourage you, like, one of the reasons we do this prayer gathering once a month on Sunday mornings for those who can make it isn't because we're trying to See, I just want us to see a practical example. It's not because we're trying to put together a checklist of items for you to, to, to check off in order to become a disciple. It's because we're dependent on Christ for everything, right? So we want to be a people of gospel dependency, so we come to him in prayer. So I just wanted to invite you to come and pray with us after the service today. Let's pray together right now. Lord, it's at the cross that we proclaim to one another our need of you, where we confess Together before you, I depend on you. Because it's here that we see that we can never never measure up, we can never obey, and yet here you've come. You've lived the life we should have lived. You've died the death we should have died on our behalf so that we might have life in you. You've invited us into this risen life that we might grow, that we might have joy for our good, So we thank you. Lord, uh, remind us of this grace and mercy daily together at Gospel Life Church. Help us to remind one another to echo this gospel throughout the week, to extend it to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.